find Genesis chapter 1. Now, there's a question that you need to be able to answer. Because if you can't answer this question and you can't answer it biblically, you're going to find that life's going to seem rather futile. And you're going to be rather unfulfilled in it. And that question is this. Does your work really matter to God? I mean, does it? Does your work really matter? Think about it. You're going to spend about 40 to 50% of your life working. Now, how's that for an encouraging thought, huh? All pretty pumped up about that? You're going to spend a good chunk of your life working. People want to know, though, does your work matter? Now, there's a lot of people that feel a sense of guilt. And let me tell you what this looks like. They're Christian businessmen, businesswomen, and they're like, yeah, you know, I work really hard and I make money, but you know, I feel, I'm not necessarily going public with this, but I feel like I'm some sort of second-class Christian because if I was really committed, if I was really going to do something for the kingdom, if God was going to use me in significant ways, I'd be into that full-time ministry. I'd be some sort of missionary or a pastor. Or I'd be serving in some capacity directly involved in the church. In fact, my compensation would somehow be tied to that. And there's a lot of people that think that they're involved in the secular workforce and they are second class. And then there are some folks that um, think like, you know, yeah, I come to church on Sunday. And it seems like what I do Monday through Saturday, it's all just going to burn. Like it just really doesn't matter. I give myself fully to it, I involve myself, but in reality, it doesn't really matter because I'm not into the full-time ministry. And then there's some other folks that, that, you know, you're a banker, or you're a homemaker, you're a physician, professor, you're a tow truck driver, you actually really like what you do, you, you actually find a lot of enjoyment from that, and you actually feel a sense of guilt, like, I, I feel guilty that I, I like what I do because I should be doing, you know, some more missionary type activities I just need to tell you something. You, if you are a Christian, you are trusting in Christ, you are already in the ministry. But there's a very good chance you don't know it. Let me tell you, most of God's heroes are not the ones standing behind pulpits. They are people living out their purpose, a part of his plan, in their everyday life, and they do it through work. And so whether you are a pastor or a teacher, a builder, or you are someone in some occupation, you're writing newspapers, you're a chiropractor, you're a doctor, your work matters. And we have got a huge problem in Christianity. We have got this huge divide between the secular and the sacred and we actually we even refer to those terms. When I say it, like, yeah. And most of you think, oh, I'm in the secular, and so what I do doesn't really matter. And the few folks that are involved in the sacred, those are the really important things. And the best I can do is probably make some money and give it to the church so they can use it for the things that are really important, and everything I do doesn't matter. Let me assure you, that thinking is absolutely wrong. What is missing in most of our churches and most of our people is a solid vocation uh, understanding of vocation the theology of work and that's this morning what we're going to want to look at because if you don't have a solid theology of work your life is going to seem rather futile you're going to be very unfulfilled and frankly you're going to miss out experiencing god's great purpose for your life 
And so we're going to look at the doctrine of vocation. When I say theology, some of you are like, oh, no, theology. I hear theology. I think like, ooh, that's going to be pretty boring. Probably not going to affect my life very much. If you're thinking that way, if you think that the whole word or the concept of theology is stale, you are sorely mistaken. How many of you have ever done like a remodeling project in your house? I'm just curious. Any, some of you are ambitious. All right. And some of you even tried it yourself, right? And then afterwards you hired someone to kind of finish the project, right? You know how it is when you start a project, whether it's like you're remodeling the kitchen or your bathroom, you do it because it's like falling apart or this doesn't work anymore, right? And so we've got to fix this. And so you save up some money and then you go about the process of remodeling. And once you remodel it, man, it is great. And how many of you want to go back to the old way? We kind of liked it when we couldn't see it. We kind of like, no, of course you don't. You never want to go back to the old way once you've done the remodeling. Well, that's what theology does. Good, solid theology. It takes you from where you're at and takes you to a far better perspective of what life is really about. If you are still laboring and living with the idea that your work doesn't really matter, you need some good theology from the scripture. And what good theology do, will it'll free you, it'll emancipate you, it'll fill your life with purpose. And so let me give you a theology of work. We're going to start at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And let me give you just a simple definition of work. Work is effort exerted in some purposeful activity. Whether you're paid for it or not, that is not the issue. It's, it's a purposeful activity that is exerted, that you exert effort to accomplish this. Now, now work is a person's particular contribution to God's good world and for the common good. It's of great importance to humanity. It's of great importance to the people in the world. And it's of great importance to God's redemptive mission. That's all entailed to work. So let me give you a solid theology of work. First of all, people were made for work. Really? Let me just show you this. If your Bible's open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Notice how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very first verse of the Bible, God is portrayed as actively involved. He is creating. His infinite creativity, his omnipotence, his omniscience are unleashed. And he creates the heavens and the earth. And we find God in Genesis chapter 1 actively involved. He is working and he is actually enjoying and finding satisfaction in his work. God is personal in nature. He finds joy in work. And so he creates and he unleashes all of his creativity and his power. And he creates the heavens and the earth, the universe that we see, and even the plants and even just even cells. God is the one who does it. And he finds great joy in that. And as you make your way through Genesis chapter 1, you come to verse 26 where you have the apex of creation and we see that the crown of creation is humankind. And look at this, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Do You see, right from the very onset, you see the plurality of the Godhead. We realize that God is plural. In fact, the scriptures reveal that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, God, you see this intimate conversation. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And notice then exactly what he says right after that. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps 
on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And and look at this. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is known as the cultural mandate. God creates man for the purpose of work. Did you see that? A lot of people don't think like, work, that's the result of the fall. You know, we all messed up, so God said, you're going to pay for it. And you're going to work, and it's going to be miserable. That's completely foreign to the scripture. People were created for work. In fact, he says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. I want you to rule over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, I am creating man. I speaks of male and female. I'm creating them in my image. Now, when, they, when he talks about creating your image, that means that God has designed people to exercise proper dominion over his creation. It is by divine design. If you're created in God's image, because God himself is the creator, he's at work, he creates humankind in his image. They're to be about work, the very work that he creates them for. And also when you speak of man being created in God's image, that means that man is to reflect the likeness of their creator. We bear his image. And so we exercise creativity, dominion. We create. We're involved in his work. And so we're God's image bearers, and from the very beginning of the Bible, you see that God intended by divine design for his people to work. For some of you, this is like, this is just shattering your mind. Really? You and I, we were designed by God for work. When you look at Genesis chapter 2, which is offering kind of a closer look of creation, especially of God creating mankind, they're not separate accounts that have nothing to do with one another. Rather, chapter 1 verse, uh, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, kind of gives the cosmic revelation of how God systematically creates. Chapter 2 gives us kind of God's personal view of interacting with his creation, especially the creation of man. And notice this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. And no plant of the field was, has yet sprouted, for the Lord God has not, had not sent rain upon the earth. And look at this. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. You see, inherent to God's thinking about the creation of man, he says there is no man to cultivate the ground. Verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So you have a desolate earth. But God is now supplying water. He does it, verse 6, this mist used to rise from the ground or literally flow. Perhaps there were springs that were flowing out onto this barren earth. And then look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. What did God intend? Man needed to what? Cultivate the earth. So God creates man, and he does so for the divine purpose of work. And then look at verse 15 in chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to what? What does it say? To cultivate it and keep it. Why did God create man? He's creating man so that man might know him and enjoy him, to experience his pleasure, to know the joy and the intimacy of relationship 
But he also created man to cultivate the earth and to keep it, keep it. Now, let me give you a little Hebrew word there. You see the word cultivate? You saw that in verse 7. You see that? Uh, excuse me, in verse 5 and in verse 15. The Hebrew word there for cultivate is abad. And it's a really interesting word, and it has a variety of different uses. It's used for work. It's used for service. It's used for workmanship. And it's used for worship. Whether you're making bricks or you're crafting a fine linen or you're leading others in corporate worship and praise, that kind of service, that is always the, the word abad. And it's, and it's meant to, for you and I to understand that work and worship are to be seamless. They are directly tied together. And so mankind, when God creates him, far from sitting in pews, singing songs, and, and listening to announcements about potlucks, that's not what original worship was. Original worship was work, as God intended. And so we see that God creates man to be involved intimately in his work. God provides the water. Man is to cultivate the soil. He is to be involved in his work. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's just for the men folk, right? But women, they got the exemption. Well, let's see here. Not so fast. One of the things you want to do when you understand to scripture is that you want to interpret scripture by looking at context. When God creates man and woman, he creates both of them for the purpose of being involved in his cultural mandate to fulfill the subduing of the earth and to keep it. Now, we see that we see that God actually creates man. He has him cultivating. He's, he's putting him in the Garden of Eden. And then we actually kind of jump into looking at Eve. You see in 2.18, he says, The Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, when you see that word helper, that is a word that's really been abused and misused. And there's a lot of folks that think that, well, that's a, an inferior position. They're the helper, second class, weak, kind of helpful, should be helpful. And actually, that is completely wrong. It's, it's a word that speaks of strength. In fact, you remember in Psalm 54 how we began our worship service? David said, God is my what? Helper. When God actually is referred to as the one who is the stronghold of Jacob, the help of Israel, he's referred to as the helper of his covenant people. And when you look at it in context, what is, what is man to be helped with? Eve is created to be involved with man in work. Now, yes, you will keep reading there, and we're going to find out that uh, you look and see that woman certainly has a role in a marriage relationship. And I'm not, I'm not in any way diminishing that. There is a lot that we can learn. And that actually takes place. You actually see those things being referred to in 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But let me also point out within context that God intends that both males and females are to participate in the execution of the cultural mandate. So let me just give you four observations from these texts. First of all, Work is good, okay? We often think that it's a part of the fallen reality. Actually, it's a part of God's original divine design when sin wasn't even present on the earth. It is a good gift from God's hands. Second, work is meaningful, okay? God just didn't give people some menial tasks like, he's like, oh, 
They've got to do something. I'll just have them work. No. It's actually, it's part of, of what they're to do. It means what they're to find value in their vocation. There is, it's not just menial tasks to keep them busy. It is meaningful. Let me give you a third observation. Work is essential. We were made to work. It wasn't a peripheral add-on by the creator. But it is central to the aspect of being human, is that we actually work. We are created for it. Let me give you a fourth. Work is sacred. It's holy. This really blows away all these misconceptions of this bifurcation of secular versus sacred. Because if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, that was never the intention whatsoever. It's a seamless, woven, together truth. Our work becomes worship. And so whether you're plumbing toilets or you're doing design and architect, you need to know that your work is to be worship. Now, what we work, what we're doing is we're showing off the excellencies of God. We're showing off his attributes. God wants us to see that what we do is important to his divine design. Whether you're paid for it or not, that is not the issue. We are contributing to the common good in God's good world. So let me give you another aspect of theology of work. People were made for work. Some of you, I can just see, you're just like turning your head like, you've never thought of that before. Well, let me tell you something else about work. Sin has greatly distorted work. And if you want to see that, all you have to do is, we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we see how greatly Adam and Eve's rebellion caused a terrible corruption to God's original design and created order. It affected their relationship with him. It reflected, affected their relationship with one another. Women are going to have pain in childbirth. But guess what? There's not only an alienation from God. There's not only an alienation that starts occurring from one another. They're embarrassed. They now see themselves as naked. But there is now an alienation that takes place in their understanding of work and how they relate to work. Notice this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam, he, speaking of God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, look at this. Look what happens to work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. It's as if God just paints this picture of the intensity of hurricane force of what sin does, rebellion, disobedience toward God and his word does, even to work. Now you're going to toil. Now it's going to be difficult. Now it's going to be painful. You're not going to relate the same to work as you once did. It's going to be a very difficult process. In times, it's going to feel futile. Some of you can relate. You're like, huh. That's describing my job. It is. It's because of the curse. It's because of the fall. Work is not what it ought to be. We were created by God to enjoy him, to enjoy our work, to find satisfaction and fulfillment in it. But due to the fall, we completely blew it. And yet the cultural mandate is still there. We are still to work. We are still to subdue the earth. We're still to keep it. 
But now it's going to come through toil, labor, sweat, blood, tears, gas. It's going to be difficult. You see, work is not what it ought to be. Work now will be painfully difficult. I mean, it's always going to be harder. There's a break off from God's divine design because now there's corruption that's entered because of sin. And you look at systems and technologies and economics and structures. All of this reflects that there's this warping that has taken place in work. Let me also tell you something else about work. Work is often badly distorted. It's affected our relationships. Think about all the tension that takes place in work. We were actually created to work together to do what God has called us to do, to find enjoyment, even satisfaction and fulfillment of it. Now we're at each other's throats. There's competition, there's pain, there's agonizing. And we don't even have a right understanding of work. Some of the things I'm telling you today, they are revolutionary for you. Perhaps you've never heard them before. Let me tell you that work can be seen as no big deal. Let me give you one distortion. Some people think that work is no big deal. And this is really the kind of the destructive danger of slothfulness. It's like, care less about work, doesn't matter. When in reality, you're actually created for work. And you see this. You see people totally avoiding work. You know, like, that looks like work. I'll take a nap. And, they're, and then if they have jobs, they are, perhaps they're doing their jobs poorly. They're not giving a full effort. They have a bad theology and they're living it out. Or maybe they're taking advantage of their employer. You're being paid to do work, but rather what you're doing is you're keeping up with friends on Facebook, email. You're checking the weather, the news every half hour to see if something new has happened. And really, you're not working. You look like you're working. When the boss comes, I flip the screen and there it is. There's my spreadsheet. Oh, but right, right before that, you were checking out the news, right? And you're monitoring a hurricane in Florida or something like that. This is all part of the fall. It's slothfulness. It's a distortion of what work is meant to be. Or let me give you another distortion. You see, work is too big of a deal. This is the destructive danger of workaholism. I mean, like, work is everything to you. It's like an idol that always calls you from the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed. And then you start dreaming about it. It's all about work. Work, 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 work. And you give everything to it. You're going to sacrifice a lot of things. Time, pleasure, your family if it need be. But you won't sacrifice your work. It's a distortion of what God created to be. And then some work, this is another distortion that takes place, is seen as more valuable than others. What you do is really important. But what you're doing right here, come on, that, that really doesn't matter. You don't do your job over here. That's going to affect all of us. You don't do your job over here. No one's going to notice. That is a distortion because all work is meant to contribute to God's great good. All work is important. Every believer, everyone has a contribution to make. But let me also tell you, not only is work can be painfully difficult and badly distorted, it can be very disillusioning. If you want the, you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see, I believe, Solomon is the writer on that, and he's tried all these things, and he becomes rather disillusioned by how futile it seems life lived apart from seeing God and his purpose. If you're going to develop a strong theology of work, there is, there's another truth that you need to understand, and that is that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in his work. So you have man working. He's, living, he's a sinful person, so he's fallen. He's living in a fallen world. He is still involved in work. 
But then you have Jesus that enters the scene. And you might want to turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This is a familiar text. This is where John actually, uh, Jesus actually comes to John the Baptist, his cousin. He's going to be baptized. John is calling people out to repentance. He's saying, make way for the Messiah is coming. You better repent of your evil ways and living life apart from God and finding your righteousness in, in works that will not do. You will never meet God's standard of righteousness. You need a savior. I am the one. I am the forerunner of the Messiah. He's proclaiming him. And John, and John then sees Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And we see this. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee to the Jordan, at, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent it, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I mean, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. Yeah. I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. Look what Jesus says, verse 15. But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. I want you to see this. At the forefront of Jesus' mind, of his thinking, of his attitude is to what? To fulfill all righteousness. To always do what is pleasing to the Father. That's why he was baptized. But let me assure you, this pattern of always doing what is right was the way he lived. It was not something like, well, now that I'm starting my public ministry, I'm going to start fulfilling all righteousness. Actually, throughout his life, he had been fulfilling all righteousness, doing all that the law commanded, always doing the work that pleased the Father. And you see this in verse 17 just as this, Jesus is being baptized, verse 16, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. So you have God the Son being baptized, Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, coming upon him, lighting on him. And then, verse 17, you have the Father, God the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verse 17, and behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. I am well pleased with him, not just simply because of this one act fulfilling righteousness of being baptized, because his work, he has fulfilled all righteousness in his life. Who is Jesus? You know how Jesus was referred to? Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when Jesus comes onto the scene, do you know how they refer to Jesus? They say in Mark 6, verse 3, is this not the carpenter? You see, Jesus comes, and you know what he does? He fulfills all righteousness. That's what he said. Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And when Jesus starts his public ministry, you know what he does? He's a carpenter, and he's known as a carpenter. He, they, that's what they say. This Jesus is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary. And he talks about his brothers and his sisters. And they took offense at him because Jesus spent most of his life as a carpenter. He starts his work probably at around age 12 because that's what happened in a Jewish home. The son would be apprenticed likely to his father, perhaps to someone else. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus also was a carpenter. He did that kind of work. And the word carpenter, Greek word tekton, 
Uh, it's always been translated carpenter all the way since, you know, all the way back to William Tyndale's English translation in 1526. That word has always been translated carpenter. But it's really a better translation would be craftsman. Anyone that would use stone, wood, sometimes metal for large or small building projects, that's the word tecton. That is what Jesus did. He was a worker, a craftsman. And he fulfilled all righteousness as a worker. And so Jesus would not only learn how to do this kind of work from his father, but tradition holds that Joseph dies before Jesus begins his public ministry. That means Jesus is solely responsible for his family, his mother and his brothers. I don't know if you've thought about this. We kind of almost refer to this as Jesus' hidden years. There's no real scriptural detail given about Jesus' life other than we know that he's a carpenter. But if he's a carpenter, if he's a craftsman of this scale, he likely was involved in all sorts of building projects. He was involved in receiving funds, setting up contracts, overseeing workers, being paid and not being paid, thinking things through, working in difficult circumstances, dealing with difficult people. How many of you in your jobs have difficult people you have to work with or work for? <laughs> okay, come on. Unless your boss is here and you kept your hand down like, oh, he's going to see me, right? Oh, we all have it, right? There is no perfect boss, right? Except for Jesus. Even Joseph, I'm sure, was far from perfect. Any perfect dads out here? Can you imagine training your son? I'm sure there are some moments, but not from Jesus, but from Joseph. Jesus demonstrated teachability, understanding, competence. And I want you to see this, that Jesus fulfills all righteousness, and a bulk of that happens as a worker, as a carpenter. Jesus was paid. He received funds. He set up contracts. And when you look at Jesus' parables, it shouldn't surprise us that about 50% of them deal with work. He's talking about work. He's talking about compensation. He's talking about building. Remember like how he ends the Sermon on the Mount where you've got the, the two men, and they're building the two houses, and one lays the foundation on the rock and the other one doesn't? Can't you just see a scene where Jesus is working with his father? They're building a house, and they're like, Dad, can we stop digging? And Joseph says, uh, have you hit rock yet? No. Keep on digging until you hit that foundation. These were all very formative in the earthly human life of Jesus. Or when Jesus spoke of completing a tower and making sure that you got the money to do it, was it possible that Jesus was involved in building a tower and didn't get paid for it? I mean, there was a Romans occupied Israel. Nazareth was an outpost. It's possible that Jesus was involved in some rather large-scale projects building stables, maybe a tower, housing soldiers, building homes. He was a worker, and as a worker, he fulfilled all righteousness. And Jesus brilliantly teaches us how to work. He speaks as one who's been there. And let me show you that, you know, when Jesus gets up from supper right before he is crucified and he washes feet, remember that, with the towel in the basin? He's doing the most menial job. The lowest slave would do that. You see, this had been a way of life for Jesus. Emptying himself so that he might experience the fullness of humanity. Fulfilling all righteousness. And he shows us how to work and how valuable work is. Think of it this way, friends. When God saw fit that in eternity past, that he would send his son to redeem a lost humanity so that he might demonstrate the greatness of his character. In the incarnation, he chose that his son would be a carpenter. 
Jesus is more than a carpenter, but he is not less. And Jesus comes. He develops strength. He's got well callous hands. He is very familiar with work. People recognized him as a contractor who now had a ministry like an itinerant rabbi who was speaking truth and wisdom that just far exceeded anything that was ever spoken before. And so let me just tell you that work was not mundane and meaningless for Jesus. It was the way he fulfilled all righteousness. And think of it when he worked. He didn't do a shoddy job. He didn't make crooked legs for the table or drawers that didn't work. He would have never done that. You know why? How would anyone believe that he who created the heavens and the earth with his hand would create shoddy workmanship in the shop? So when Jesus hears, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, this was a lifetime pursuit in him. And Jesus, the carpenter, the Christ, he was crucified. The eternal son of God. He lived a perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sins and he rose again. And he offers eternal life to those who believe in him. And so you see what happens is with Jesus, he redeems us. He reconciles man to God through his life and death and his resurrection. He reconciles man to himself. where You don't have to be always at anguish with yourself. Man with each other. Where we can actually relate to one another as God intended. And he also reconciles man to his creation especially to work. All of this takes place through the gospel of Christ. Let me show you something else about a good theology of work. That Christians glorify God and serve Christ through work. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, but I want to just give you some some verses here. Your faith in Christ profoundly connects with work. What? Yeah. What you do on Monday is just as important as what you do on Sunday. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 16. Where's that going to take place? It's going to take place in your jobs, in your homes. Or like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, do what? All for the glory of God. In Colossians chapter 3, when God talks about the, the beautiful magnificence of us finding our new life in Christ, he talks about how relationships between his husband, wife, children are to be reconciled and how we're to live. Do you know he also talks about work? And in the midst of that section on work, he says in Colossians 3.23, he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. See what you do in your job as for him. Or Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are created for good works. God prepared beforehand. We're to walk in him because God is glorified and Christ is served when you and I work. Our identity is not in our work. It's in Christ. And we are created to contribute. And what you do with your work is a foretaste of what is to come. When a doctor is involved in dealing with sickness, he's involved in bringing about healing. When an architect or an artist does something that creates beauty and structure and substance, it reflects God and his creativity. When a violinist plays their instrument, 
It speaks of the beauty of God. You and I reflect justice, truth, grace, beauty, wholeness. And you know how we do it? We do it as God designed from the very beginning. We do it through our work. And so God wants us to see that his mission flows through our work. Is your work important? Absolutely. It completely matters to God. You're in the ministry. You just might not know it. And let me just finally, why don't you turn to the very last chapter of the Bible? Because I want you to see how Scripture ends. We saw from the very beginning, God is creating. He involves man. He wants man to be involved in cultivating the soil, keeping his earth. I want you to see that in the very last chapter, that believers will eternity worship, eternally worship Christ with work. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 22. Look how the Bible ends. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And notice this. And his bondservants will what? What are they doing? They're going to serve him. What? We're working in eternity in the new heavens, the new earth? Yes, because God created man for work. They're going, his bondservants, his servants, if you're a servant of Christ today, you'll be serving him in eternity, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there'll be great delight. If you've got some sort of sorry understanding of heaven, like, well, we're just going to be like little overweight little cherubs, and we're just going to be playing little harps, and we're just, you know, and just floating around on clouds, and just like, I just guess another hundred years just passed us by. No. Heaven's going to be great and glorious. We're going to have to be in the presence of the king, and we're going to be actively involved in his work. He wants you to start experiencing that now. It starts with a good theology. Your work matters to God. Whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a mom at home, or you're a CFO, or you're a doctor, or you're a professor, you're a banker, you're a mechanic, your work matters to God. And let me just tell you that when you keep Christ at the center of your work, your work becomes worship. It's abad. Work becomes worship. That's what God intended. That is the reality of the gospel. And so from Genesis to Revelation, you see that vocation is integral, not incidental. It's both reflecting the image of God and his redemptive purposes in this earth. That is what God created us for. So when you're getting ready to leave here this morning and you start thinking about tomorrow, let me just give you this to remember. Remember this. Remember your work is an act of worship. Your work is an act of worship. I want you to start seeing what you do during the day differently. Your work work is an act of worship. Just remember The same one you're singing praises to today and praying to here in this worship service, you're serving on Monday morning. You have an audience of wantings the same today as he is tomorrow. Remember this, that your work is an important stewardship. When you look at the parable of the talents, remember this? And Jesus says, I want you to go and do the work with this. A big bulk of that is going to happen in what you do in your vocation. It matters. It doesn't burn up. It's not futile. It's of great importance. In fact, you're going to be evaluated. Did you understand what you were doing, and did you do it to the glory of God? We're going to talk more about what does that look like next week. 
And then remember this. Your work is to be done well. After all, God designed you for work. Some of you have heard of Dr. Um, Richard Halverson. He was a pastor. He also became the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. There was a couple that came back and visited him. They had attended his church when they were younger. Uh, John uh, Stanford went on to get his Ph.D. He taught at Iowa State University. He goes back, and they go back and visit Dr. Halverson, and they had this little conversation with him. And uh, John brings up to Dr. Halverson, he says, you know, I'm a university professor, but at times I've wondered if I should become a pastor and go into full-time ministry. <laughs> Dr. Halverson just totally blew that off. He's like, oh, what? And he said this, one day you will be absolutely amazed at the influence that you have had for Christ. And you know where that influence is? It's in your work. Does your work matter to God? Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just the marvelous truths of your word. That our lives are opened, our minds are enlightened, and we live differently because we have a better understanding. We have a system of belief that affects our behavior. It is the theology of Scripture. And so, Father, I thank you for the few minutes that we've had to trace a dominant theme of Scripture that oftentimes completely goes overlooked. That you have designed us for work. That we might express to you worship. So Lord, would that be a reality for all of us? Help us to see our lives differently, no matter what we're doing. Whether we're at home with the kids, we're a homemaker. Whether we're a student. Whether we have some other occupation whether we see ourselves retired, but we are called still to contribute. May our work be worship as we keep Christ the center. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.